Uh, I've entitled this uh, sermon, Redemption Through Fire. And last week I suggested that the way to reconcile a set of passages, two sets of passages, that talk first about a narrow path and few that find it, and then universal salvation, was to recognize that the cross of Christ is not addressing the category of Gehenna or hell or the lake of fire, but the cross of Christ addresses the problem of sin and death. And salvation is unfolding in history, and this is why the work of Christ, his incarnation, is in time in history. That is, we're witnessing this unfolding. And uh, let me edit here a little bit as I'm going, but let me start with a passage uh, from 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 17. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. In this passage, there's two pictures, and this is kind of what I want to talk about. There's the picture of a redemptive or purging fire that purifies. That is, the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up, but you will be saved as through fire. But then immediately after that, it talks about total destruction. That some will be destroyed. And so my point is to go through several passages to show that there are no passages in the New Testament, which teach uh, eternal conscious torment. At the same time as we deal with these passages, what we encounter in several is not future uh, torture, but present tense redemption, as in this passage in Corinthians. So part of what is taking place is a description of a present tense purifying, purging, or redemption And partly it's a warning, you know, uh, that there is this warning, you have a choice, which is to say the presumption, it's clearly not a Calvinist idea that in some way that some are chosen for hell and some for heaven, uh, that predestination doesn't work in in that way, uh, but rather that it's, we're all, you know, predestination is in and through Christ. The other thing is, you know, that justification for an eternally conscious torment in one argument is that humans choose through their free will. I think that's partly right, but of course no one can be said to be completely free outside of Christ. And to imagine freedom as primarily freedom of choice misses the point that no freedom is that which is offered in Christ. Only those found in Christ have true freedom. 
But neither is it the case that humans are automatons or robots. We are being trained in freedom, I think might be a way to look at this. Uh, Our freedom is something that emerges in Christ. So part of the, several of these passages is this purifying training. Now I'm not saying all of that, so let me look at the first one. In fact, where we might have, where traditionally, and this may be the only passage, that brings together two words, and I want to talk about this. Let me read Matthew 25, 43 to 46. And this is a judgment scene. For, and I'm reading here from, this is David Bentley Hart's translation uh, of the New Testament. For I was hungry, and you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, and you did not uh, uh, give me drink. I was a stranger, and you did not provide me hospitality. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. Then they too will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or ill or in prison and did not attend to you? Then he will answer them saying, Amen. I tell you inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, neither did you it to me. And these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Now, in many of our translations, we have the the phrase here, chastening of that age is eternal punishment. I think it's the only place in Scripture where eternal punishment occurs together. Um, So what I want to look at is, first of all, the the idea of punishment, and then look at the word eternal. But the concept of eternal or everlasting punishment uh, maybe hinges on this verse, but it's the only place certainly where these two words occur together. And even here, it's not in all Bibles, in all translations. So there's over a dozen translations uh, which don't contain the phrase eternal punishment. Um, And certainly, there is no idea of a pagan concept of hell. You know, Dante's Inferno with Satan presiding over a continual everlasting kingdom in rebellion against God as if there are these two uh, parallel kingdoms. The Greek form here for uh, what we uh, uh, what Hart translates the the punishment or uh, you know of that age or the chastening of that age ever or some translate everlasting punishment. The idea is of chastening, correction, certainly punishment to cut off. Usually or previous in early uh, etymology of the word, it was so that in uh, horticulture so that something could bear more fruit. Uh, so to prune or dock or to in some way, you know, you, you trim a plant so that it will grow. It could also mean a kind of confinement, uh, being something being held in check. And there are places, you know, that talk about the devil and his angels being held in check. Um, there's chastisement. But usually the connotation is one of correction. And so classically the word was distinguished in here. Aristotle uses it in this way. Uh, Not as a retributive punishment. Uh, But the word came to mean punishment of any kind. And the question is in the New Testament, 
how it's how this passage and it is this passage how it might be being used uh, we know other places such as first john four eighteen, where the word is used it has the idea of you know not retributive punishment but the suffering someone suffers in fear there is no fear there is no uh, punishment in love but perfect love casts out this kind of punishing fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love there's the verbal form appears in Acts 4:21 where it's clearly a disciplinary punishment when the disciples you know the apostles are arrested and they're threatened with beating and they let them go finding no basis on which to punish them to you know the word is there too um, in Second Peter two nine, it references the fallen angels and the unrighteous who are being held in check or they're pinned up. And this is a prejudgment passage that talks about they're pinned up or confined until the day of judgment. The other word here is the word eternal, and uh, part of the problem in de- saying what is an infinite or eternal in Scripture is that the Greek and Hebrew words that are often translated as eternal or everlasting are probably better rendered uh, as enduring for an age with a definite you know, idea of a beginning and an end. Because here are things that are said to have this idea of, you know, would we say circumcision, the Aaronic priesthood. These are not eternal things, but these endure for an age. Solomon's temple, even Jonah in the belly of the well, sometimes that's mistranslated as he was there eternally. No, he was there for a period of time. The fire which destroyed Sodom and the Moabites' exclusion from the temple, even some hills and mountains, you know, it says, well, they're here, they're enduring, they're here for a long age. Animal sacrifices. Um, so we wouldn't say that these are eternal. So the noun in, in the Greek literature has the idea of an indeterminate period of time. So it could be as short as the time Jonah spent, you know, three days and nights in the belly of the well, of the fish, rather. Um, but not forever, not eternally there. And so the Bible speaks of five, at least five ages. There's the coming age, the present wicked age. It's the same word. It doesn't mean everlasting. There is the coming, the conclusion of the age. There is the secret concealed age, you know. Um, and the punishment depicted... I would say then is not, we, we sometimes have translations that talk about eternal punishment, but it's this word that is used of these ideas that doesn't mean, it just means for this period of time. And so the coming age, the age to come of God's reign, uh, is not to pronounce that there's infinite punishment coming, but maybe as Hart translates it, they will go to the chastening of that age. He maintains, he says, well, even if I use the word eternal here, this is in his footnote, there would be no reason to assume that Christ is speaking of perpetual conscious torment rather than annihilation. Uh, Let's look at another passage, uh, a similar uh, wording here. 
should not, uh, this is Matthew 18, 33, and this is the parable Jesus is telling. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should repay all that he owed. That is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And the question here, you know, the torture, the, the jailer, um, the, the word torture is used. Originally, this was used of coins, uh, some, rather somebody who was the inspector of the coins. And they would test the coins, the metal in the coins. And those that survived the testing zone is tr- treated to even harsher treatment. And so man is in the position maybe of being severely tested by this process, this torture, uh, that the testing of the, the, the thought, the testing of the genuineness of the, the metal or the person or the character, so too the testing of the person, the true state of affairs. Um, so in the New Testament, uh, it, the same word is used to, you know, the centurion servant is lying sick of a palsy, in Matthew 8, 6, it says he's grievously, grievously tormented. Same word. Uh, to those who possess demons, uh, which Jesus encountered, they have a tormenting experience. Uh, it's used of the pains of labor, even. At Second Peter, same, you know, the torment of the soul. Uh, Lot suffers when he sees the inhabitants of Sodom. He suffers this licentiousness. So the idea here is of a to testing, to question by applying, uh, you know, the, the test. It could mean to simply torture, to vex with grievous pains, to be harassed, distressed of those. It's even describing sailors at sea, uh, that the, or, or the disciples when they're in the Sea of Galilee. Um, and the picture here is of a present tense thing. Judgment is upon this world, Jesus says. Uh, now the ruler of this world will be cast out in John 12, 31, if I am lifted up from the earth. And so what I would say about a, a series of these passages, like the one I read from Corinthians, that we are now in a time of testing. We're now undergoing a kind of fiery trial. Um, this is the way Paul pictures his own life. He talks about... Uh, at the, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So judgment, salvation in the present tense. Giving no cause for offense in anything, he says. And then he goes through and he describes all the torments, the trials, the torture, that they've experienced in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. He concludes, we lived as punished, yet not put to death. As tortured, but not put to death. It's almost a depiction of what he's describing in the 2 Corinthians 3 passage, in which you're passing through fire. Um... 
that as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Salvation is what he's picturing being worked out in our lives. Even the passage, you know, in Revelation where it talks about the judgment. I saw the dead, small and great, Revelation 20, 12, stand before God and the books were open. What is the book? Well, the books are the books of, uh, about the living and the dead, the things that they did in their lives. All the above takes place then in, in the now. As each of us stands before God, our lives are before him, presented to him. And we are actively placing upon, you know, as in the Second Corinthians passage, or uh, the altar, the foundation, which is Christ. And so we could say some will experience fire, and we are experiencing that fire. Jesus even talks about the time of you know, his own testing and, and a fire being unleashed. Now the other part of the First Corinthians passage the, uh, uh, is that some will, is if any man destroys the temple of God, chapter 3, verse 17, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and is that is what you are. So there's one, the testing by fire, the purging fire, the purification, but then there's the other, the complete destruction. And the word here, destroy, means to ruin, to perish, to be destroyed, to be laid waste. Uh, It's said of a city, you know, you destroy the city, that there's nothing left. Um, In uh, uh, 2 Peter 2.12, But these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish. In other words, they're gone. They're annihilated. Um, and so these works, the, the first passage, you know, the wood, hand, stubble, they will be consumed as of fire. But the individual will be saved because he's built on the foundation of Christ. On the other hand, these other people will be utterly destroyed. It's there in both, both instances, or, or both cases are there. Jesus himself says that he's come to cast fire on the earth. This is the the other parable. The slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready. uh, This I'm reading from Luke 12, 47 to 53. Um, The one who did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of of flogging will receive but few. That is, punishments are meted out and there are degrees of punishment. From everyone who has been given, much, much will be required. And to him whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask the more. I have come, he says, Jesus says, to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. Jesus is describing the judgment, the trials. And then he goes on to describe that households will be split up. That uh, father and son, mother and father, uh, daughter and mother, that they will be divided against each other. So the conclusion of this 
is that I think there is this picture, there is certainly a picture of a final judgment, but there's also a picture of an unfolding judgment. Jesus employs lots of metaphors, you know, the the burning of chaff or of brambles and ovens or even the final destruction of the body. But uh, these are metaphors of annihilation. Elsewhere, he uses metaphors of exclusion, like the doors sealed at the wedding feast. Um, and yet those are the, the even when there's pictures of what the word torture or torment that we looked at, uh, these are also, for the most part, they're penalties that explicitly have only a limited time. So, you know, we looked at Matthew 5, Luke 12, 47. I think we could conclude there are no passages in the New Testament which teach eternal conscious torment. Now they teach, you know, I think part of this, as we discussed this morning, there is this fearful judgment. And they're trying to evoke a response. Jesus is, is, you know, repent. And I think that is certainly the idea. This thing is fearful. And, but the idea is also that we can respond and that we have then the true foundation, the resolution to the problem of sin given to us in the one true foundation, which is Christ Jesus. Let's sing our hymn of meditation.